From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. And this morning, our Cool Science co-host, John Wells, talks with Katherine Harkup, who has written Super Spy Science, Science, Death, and Tech in the World of James Bond. It's an exploration of the full range of 007's exploits and the arms, technologies, tactics, and downfalls of his various foes. Then John and I speak with astronomer Dean Regas, who joins the show to discuss National Geographic's Thousand Facts About Space, in which he explores dazzling facts about the vast expanse from glowing stars billions of light years away to supermassive exploding supernovas to rockets thundering into the unknown. I'm John Wells. I'm here with Linware Peak. Our next guest is Catherine Harkup, who has written Super Spy Science, Science, Death, and Tech in the World of James Bond. 007 franchise is known for its guns, gadgets, grandiose schemes to take over the world, and more. In Super Spy Science, Harkup explores how science and technology intersect with the world of Bond, the weaponry, the technologies, the fast cars, ill-fated strategies of the Bond villains. Catherine Harkup, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, we're delighted to to have you on, a, a fellow Bond fan. <laughs> How were you introduced to Bond, and what impact has the 60-year franchise had on you? I, I can't even remember being introduced to it. It was always there in the background. It's like a constant cultural reference in my life. I, I grew up with the in the Roger Moore era of the Bond films, but I, you know, they're always on the TV, they're re-showings in cinema, and there's always a new Bond film out every few years. So it's just been a constant theme in my life. Yeah, and when I moved from New York to uh, Massachusetts with my family, I think I was in junior high, nobody in my family gave me this book. Somebody at school gave me the book. It was Casino Royale. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my introduction. And of course, the films followed and it was it was just fascinating. And uh, in the Bond films, we're, we're introduced to in, at Goldfinger uh, to 007 as he swims to where the bad guys are. He takes his wetsuit off. Underneath is a perfectly tailored dinner jacket and black tie. His hair, of course, is perfect. And I know that all Bond fans remember that iconic scene, but what I didn't know was that it was based on actual events during World War II. Can you talk yeah. about that? There was a spy who was working for the Allies, and he wanted to infiltrate a known group of Nazis who were hanging around in a casino. And so the he was um, a Dutch national, but the British uh, Secret Service, they kitted him out with a special suit that would cover up a, a dinner jacket that he was wearing underneath because he had to swim to shore. He then had to uh, turn up in this casino and blend in with all of the other people there. So as soon as he emerged and he peeled off this wetsuit or dry suit, uh, he was sprinkled with some brandy to just you know get the drunken effect to perfection. And then he was pushed into the casino to see what secrets he could learn. That's just fascinating. And uh, of course, all of this started with Ian Fleming, who worked uh, in the British government and probably heard that story and somehow packaged it into the Goldfinger uh, scene. Um, tell us about Ian Fleming. Who was he? 
He was born to quite a well-to-do family. Uh, they were involved in banking and his family tried to pressurise him into going into the banking world and it absolutely did not suit him. Uh, fortunately, uh, a war came along, which was the making of Ian Fleming. It was the unmaking of a lot of people, but it was the making of Ian Fleming. And he found himself working as personal secretary or a personal assistant to the head of the Naval Intelligence Division. And he was kind of the Miss Moneypenny sitting outside the door, guarding his boss's time and seeing all of the secret information that was being passed across his desk. And he would attend meetings. He was privy, as you say, to all sorts of secret information, details of which he squirreled away in his brain for use in his spy novels. Yes. And uh, uh, I believe he was in the Virgin, was it the Virgin Islands somewhere in the Caribbean where he had uh, a Jamaica. Home? In Jamaica. Okay. And uh, that's where he did a lot of his writing. And he was pretty disciplined, you know, a couple thousand words a day, and he would knock out a book probably yearly. Yeah, absolutely. He, after the war, he went into the publishing industry and uh, God alone knows how, but he managed to negotiate three months leave every year. And so he got out of the worst of the British weather and he went over to Jamaica to his house called Goldeneye. And he would sit there at a golden typewriter and he would bash away at an X number of words per day. Then he would go swimming and snorkeling and look at the exotic fish. Um, it's you know quite a life of luxury, but he did manage to churn out a novel a year for 12, 14 years. And I know that uh, authors' lives can can oftentimes be tormented, but boy, it sure seems like he had a lot of fun doing this. <laughs> I think this was, I think he wrote to amuse himself. And there were a lot of other people who were entertained, intrigued, and amused by very similar things to him. You know, guns, girls, good food, lots of booze, adventures, exotic locations, daring do. You know, this appealed to a broad number of readers. So he was quite successful. Yeah. Uh, tell us about uh, in in the cinema, the cinematic explosions in these action genres are pretty unrealistic to what actual explosions are like. And of course, the Bond films uh, were, were that way as well. There seems to be more fire, more smoke uh, than actual explosions and a certainly longer duration and sometimes in slow motion too. Uh, so uh, what is different in cinematic explosions and these types of things versus what really happens? Well, obviously, cinema is a very visual medium, and so you need to see an explosion. He just hearing a very loud noise and seeing a cloud of dust, maybe, isn't terribly exciting. And it can be, I think, confusing to an audience who expect to see flames and smoke. And so the filmmakers make sure that there is lots of flames and smoke. So you use lots of petrol or oil that will ignite after the explosion so that you can see it. And of course, it just gets bigger and better with every installation of the film. Uh, I think we'd all be disappointed if nothing blew up in a Bond film. It's part <laughs> of the reason for going. Uh, speaking of all these special effects, Thunderball, uh, actually, and I didn't know this until I read your book, received an Oscar for best special effects and i believe his name was john sears who had that one scene where he where where they blow up uh the volante which is uh, largo's big beautiful boat that was quite an explosion oh it is quite an explosion um it shattered windows on the mainland and i think it 
the filmmakers were lucky that no one was hurt and they got away with it. But yeah, he absolutely miscalculated the amount of <laughs> explosives that he needed. Fortunately, it was offshore, but yeah, there were consequences elsewhere. But this is what impresses me about the films. You, you know, we kind of, I think we've come to expect a lot of CGI and uh, camera trickery, but these people built this stuff and blew it up for real. That Disco Volante, that was a boat that worked. It it sailed and it separated in two. It didn't work first time, but it did work. And I think that is a credit to the filmmakers that they always went that extra mile to put the reality of their production on the screen. And John Sears said that not only did it blow out windows, possibly as far as 60 miles away, but that uh, after the explosion, several minutes later, debris was still coming down from the sky. I mean, when they blew up that boat, they blew up that boat. Oh, absolutely. What is even more impressive in a later film, uh, that Bond has the biggest explosion ever recorded on camera. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a claim to fame. And that's in, Quant no, is it in Quantum of Solace? Oh, I've forgotten which. It's one of the Daniel Craig films. Sure. But, um, oh, it's when they're blowing up Blofeld's lair in the desert. Ah, right. Massive explosion. They only had one take and they got it on film. But, of course, they had lots of leftover explosives. And you can't just store that away for the next film. You have to get rid of it. So the explosion to get rid of the leftovers was even bigger than the one that was caught on camera. Wow. And speaking of Blowfield, we found out later, it was probably the 23rd film in the Bond franchise, that, that Blowfield was his stepbrother and was yeah. involved with, and, and that maybe everything that happened to James Bond through the years had been some sort of plan by Spectre, I would assume. Yeah, some serious um, sibling rivalry going on between the two of them. <laughs> there, there's a lot of, um, uh, well, as Blofeld says, you know, a cuckoo in the nest. He he resented Bond's presence. This highly successful, you know, very uh, charming, seductive man, and yeah, I mean, that's clearly damaged him because I don't think most people want to take over the world. Not seriously, anyway. They might plot it in their bath from now. You know every once in a while but taking serious action to do it is rather a different thing yeah and all the bonds were different but something about daniel craig where he showed some of the um things going on behind the scenes in that mind of his mm. he was uh you know his, his 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 girlfriend he lost his girlfriend lost his wife i believe uh he had all sorts of tragedies and he wasn't afraid to uh to show those in his acting Absolutely. He's a much more vulnerable Bond. I think a lot of the Bonds before, you know, they were literally invulnerable. Whatever explosion or whatever was fired towards them or whatever dastardly means was used to try and kill them, they just dusted down their dinner jacket and strolled into the next adventure. And it became almost ludicrous. So, yes, the, the Daniel Craig, I think, is much more... Um, I mean, it's still, when you think about it, it is still ridiculous. However, Bond <laughs> does get, he gets broken, he gets damaged, you know, emotionally and physically. So he's a much more credible person as a, a human being, however ridiculous the situations he finds himself in. Catherine, how many Austin uh, Martin DB5s have been destroyed in a <laughs> franchise? 
<laughs> um, millions of pounds worth. I don't even yeah. guess at how many have gone. But yeah, the, the number of cars that have been wrecked all in the name of a few seconds on film just to, to get that perfect stunt. Yeah, there must be debris scattered all over the world and bits of broken Bond cars um, choking up all sorts of byways. Yeah, and, and, and the one scene that I really enjoyed uh, with an Austin Martin DB5, of course, the bad guy being ejected, I think, was that Goldfinger? Yeah, that's Goldfinger. Yeah. Uh, was one of the later films. They say that patience is a virtue. Uh, he, All these bad guys have surrounded him with all this weaponry, and they're all, and he just sits there in the car and lets them blast away. And yeah. then... And then he takes over with that machine gun on, you know, uh, that's mounted in the uh, in the DB five, and and it's pretty pretty interesting. I mean, it, I mean, Daniel Craig was my favorite. Did you have a favorite? Um, I, I do have a, a favorite, but it's a bit of a, a an off piste one. My favorite Bond is Bob Holness who mm. no one's ever heard of. He was the first uh, actor to ever play Bond, and he played him in a radio. Uh, production of Casino Royale and he is a very popular figure in the UK because he used to host a quiz program that was very popular with students ah. so after his acting career he went on to this uh, you know daytime TV game show and he I claim him as a very distant relative of mine so I'm a very distant relative of a very early Bond um, very very distant his relatives will be pleased to hear but yes he's my favourite just because he was a South African actor who took on the role of James Bond back in the 1950s, I think it was, and no one's ever heard of him. Yeah, and the the first film with Sean Connery, uh, was that Dr. No? Yeah, in 1962. Do in 62. Dr. No um, was originally slated to be a television show? Yeah, I believe it was. Uh, Dr. No, yes, it, Fleming had been asked to write a TV series about an American spy. Uh, so it was basically Jimmy Bond. It was just an Americanized version of James Bond. And so these adventures were sketched out by Fleming, but they were never used by the TV production company. So rather than waste material, and because he's you know on a tight <laughs> a tight deadline, he's got fish to catch and you know snorkeling to do on his uh, Jamaican. Uh, home so he's gonna borrow all of those ideas and then work them up into a novel of course of course so let's talk about some of these villains uh, well maybe we can start with their lairs because they've had fascinating places to set up operations Honestly, they are absolutely spectacular. If anyone, you know, if you're aspiring to be anyone in a Bond film, I pick the villains because they are in the most comfortably and stylishly appointed abodes. There are much better incomes than Bond. And, you know, they get to work when they want to rather than, you know, on a government salary and he's posted wherever he's told to. So my vote is for the villain lifestyle. I mean, it, it, it's short lived, but it's quite a comfortable living while you have it. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a volcano. Who wouldn't want to live inside a volcano? Maybe me. I, I might not want to live inside a volcano. <laughs> um, I think it's probably quite hazardous. But yeah, they're, they're spectacular. And again, all credit to the filmmakers who put together these astonishing sets that just look fantastic on screen and were just as impressive, apparently, in real life. 
Well, we've had we've had these layers, uh, as you said, in a volcano. We've had them in outer space. Mm-hmm. We've had them out in the middle of a desert. Wasn't there one that was underwater? Or am I thinking about Mike yes. Myers? No, that's Stromberg, uh, an underwater layer. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you build that. I mean, I think it's possible. You'd need a heck of a lot of money, but money never seems to be an issue for these uh, villains. Uh, yeah, they've been under graveyards. They've been in all sorts of strange places, but they're always uh, very well appointed, very comfortable and complete with exotic pets. What's yes. not to love? <laughs> <laughs> and uh their their strategies are not necessarily the best they're not able to execute their strategies but but they are bigger than life they're very colorful and eccentric of course absolutely and as the point the filmmakers point out you have to have a villain who is of comparable impressiveness stature ego to bond otherwise what's the point there's no challenge so you have to have these big impressive set pieces these big impressive plots however implausible otherwise i don't think the audience would show up it would be too easy for bond He's not going to do real spying. He's not going to sit there listening in on phone conversations. No one's going to watch that. We want to see him, you know, handcuffed to an atomic bomb inside Fort Knox because that's <laughs> that's what we pay for. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, help us with some of the misconceptions. A lot of people die in the Bond films and maybe they couldn't really die in real life. For For an example, will a piranha kill you? No, as long as you are surrounded by well-fed, well-kept, happy piranhas, you're in no danger. The myth that uh, piranhas can strip a a body to the bone in seconds is exactly that. It is a myth, and it's been perpetuated for a long time, especially in films. I wouldn't put it past Blofeld to mistreat his animals. He certainly mistreats the humans around him. So maybe he's starving his fish just you know, in case he needs to push a henchman into their pond to kill them. In which case, yes, a hungry piranha can go through a, a body quite quickly. They have very powerful bites, very sharp teeth. But generally speaking, you can swim in piranha infested waters uh, in South America and not be concerned because they have plenty of food and they're not going to be interested in you. Hmm. How about uh, giant space mirrors? Can they kill you? (laughs) Giant space mirrors, I think this was a surprise to me. Giant space mirrors are actually a thing. And I didn't, I I thought this was firmly in the realm of, okay, we're just going to go really big and really silly. But space mirrors are a thing. They were devised by the Russians. They weren't designed to kill. The idea was that you use these big mirrors to reflect sunlight so that you can extend the day which is very good in parts of Russia, which are, you know, they have very short days. It's uh, so you can just expend, extend uh, your time outside, basically. So that all makes sense. And they launched a couple, but it all went a bit wrong. And they apparently they were as bright as 10 moons, which sounds quite bright to me. But certainly even 10 moons worth of light is not going to harm anyone. That's not even going to get you a tan. So uh, I don't... Yes, as per usual, Bond has taken a real idea and just driven it to absolute extremes for the benefit of cinema. 
How about death by gold paint? We know that the human skin is the largest uh, organ on the body. It needs to breathe. It needs to be healthy. And they led us to believe in Goldfinger that it'll also kill you if it's if it's if it's covered up. Absolutely. So the excuse that is given or the reasoning that is given in the film and in the book is that this poor woman who's covered in gold paint dies of skin suffocation. And yes, you do absorb oxygen through your skin, but it's about 2%. The other 98% is going through your lungs and you can live without the 2% oxygen. You can get by on 98% just fine. The problem is if you cover up all of the pores in your body, because the body, not the skin doesn't just uh, exchange oxygen, it also releases sweat and moisture, which is incredibly important for keeping us cool. So if you block off all of those pores, it's very difficult for us to radiate out the heat that we're generating inside us. So basically, it's you're slow cooking this poor woman who's been covered in gold paint. Now, it would take a good few hours to reach a temperature that would start to destroy cells. That's around uh, 40 degrees C, which is what, about 110 Fahrenheit ish, somewhere around there. Um and that's, you know, six hours is a long time for Bond to be unconscious in the kitchen because he's been knocked out with a champagne bottle. Or Sorry. no, is it a chop? It's not a champagne bottle, is it? It's a chop to the back of the head from uh, Odd Job. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah, so he's out for a long time, in which case he needs some medical attention because being unconscious for six hours is, is not good. Uh, but there's plenty of opportunity to wake up, feel a bit hot and wash off the paint. Um, uh, I don't. Th I don't think there's any real danger from pe you know the idea that uh, people still leave a patch of skin uncovered just in case. I mean, okay, fair enough. But you're in no real danger. I wouldn't have thought. Any other misconceptions on uh, what really can't kill you? I mean, uh, you, you talked about Oddjob. I mean, he had a bowler's hat that had a rim on it that was very dangerous. I, I suppose they could rig a hat like that to to hurt somebody, actually. But is there, are there any other misconceptions that were cinematic uh, uh, liberties that were taken? I mean, there are quite a few. I mean, there's the more obvious uh, examples of, sorry if it comes as a shock to anyone, but giant space lasers, I mean, space mirrors <laughs> are a thing, but giant space lasers made of diamonds are not a thing. <laughs> sorry. Right. Uh, but other misconceptions like the laser beam between the legs. I think we kind of assume that Bond is in real danger in that situation because we can see it cutting through the gold again in goldfinger we can see it cutting through the the metal uh, table that he's laying on or that he's tied down to in actual fact lasers were a very new thing in 1965 4 when the film right. was made right and they just weren't powerful enough uh, so they couldn't have cut through the metal. They wouldn't have cut through James Bond. So he would have been fine. It is just a, an idle threat from Goldfinger. Also, the fact that it's got a red light, I, you need that so that cinema audiences know what going knows what is going on. But red lasers actually aren't that powerful. The mm. powerful lasers that can now cut through metal, they are invisible. You can't see them with the naked eye. But that would make no sense. So I get the red light thing. Uh, so James Bond in no particular danger. Sean Connery, I, I 
would be concerned for Sean Connery because the actual practicalities of making that scene, obviously they have to see this uh, gold being cut in two. So they have a, a metal table and they have a bit drilled out and it is filled with solder. And you have a prop guy underneath with a blowtorch melting the solder. And of course, as the prop guy moves towards Sean Connery, he can't see Sean Connery because he's under a table. So apparently things did get a little bit warm. I've watched all 25 Bond films, and uh, I think that as a kid watching them and watching them now, I I, I get uh, com completely wrapped up in the plot, and, and everything's very believable to me. I'm on, a, you know, it's just a little fantasy ride. But it was interesting, when I got your book, I said, you know, before I read Catherine's book, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to watch Dr. No, 1962. And I couldn't believe how cheesy that fire-eating yep. dragon was. And and it was just, and I, I think back in 1962, I bought it. You know, I said, oh, yeah, this is great. But it was pretty cheesy. It, yeah, I that film suffered a lot from budget restraints. And I think that particular dragon tank thing marks the point where the budget finally ran out. Because <laughs> um, the, I can imagine with John Adams and a decent uh, amount of cash behind him, he could have made a very impressive dragon tank. But that is not what's on screen. I'm sorry to say that that has not aged well. Yeah. Ian Fleming, of course, uh, brought James Bond and made made the character and brought him alive in his books. The movies, the family, it's the Broccoli family, is that correct? Mm -hmm. They they have been with it from the very beginning. Uh, tell us about them and about about some of their uh, beliefs in in bringing Bond to the silver screen. Oh, so they um Albert El Cubby Broccoli was a fan of the books and he desperately wanted to acquire the rights so that he could make the films. So he had a bit of a history in filmmaking, but he couldn't get hold of the, the books. Uh, Harry Saltzman had the rights to the books, but didn't have the connections and the filmmaking experience to make them into films. Fortunately, the two met each other and they started making these films, but they are always... Um, they were very faithful to the books. They they brought in Ian Fleming, who wrote down you know the guide to who is James Bond and how he should be portrayed. And this is the document that they still use. This is their guide to James Bond. And they are always they're not always faithful to the details of Fleming's plot because they are pretty dated now. You know, some of them were yeah. written almost 70 years ago. Sure. Things have moved on. So they've always kept pace with the gadgets and the science and the preoccupations of the day. And you can see that in the films because of the obsession with atomic weapons uh, through the height of the Cold War. You see the Cold War wearing off and, you know, detente where Bond collaborates with the Russians and so on and so forth. So they've always kept pace with what's going on in the world, but they've never made it overtly political. Their villains are always... They're not a specific government. They might be rogues within a government, but they are always individuals. So they've managed to steer a very tricky path between being overtly political but staying current. Um, and it's, I think it's a, a, a real achievement. And the fact that they've made 25 films from a source material that is 14 books, that is... And 
you know, keep getting people coming back for more because it's the same story. We know that there will be a plot to take over the world or, you know, do some terrible deed. And we know that Bond will avert it. We know there will be a car chase. We know there will be explosions. We know there will be beautiful women, but we still go back. <laughs> and we do. that is incredible that they've managed to lure us back every time. Well, the 25th Bond film, No Time to Die, James Bond dies and Felix dies. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was tough seeing all that happen. Ironically, uh, he does not try to escape when he is finally mm. taken out. Uh, he's always trying to escape and he decided not to. Of course, he uh, uh, it was probably a wise move on his part with the nanobots in his body. But uh, But I'm curious about this. At the end of the film, just a little just a little piece at the very end bond will return or some some words like that uh mm -hmm. bond will come back or oh, some of sort of reincarnation okay absolutely oh yeah. yes this is they are not going to, i can't see them ditching this franchise there is still a thirst there is still a hunger for this and i don't know what form it will take but this is the wonderful world of James Bond. You know, the film's been around for 60 years. We don't have a 90-year-old James Bond. He's always been reinvented. He's always yeah. been recast. And I see no reason why they can't start all over again. Catherine Harkup has written Super Spy Science, Science, Death, and Tech in the World of James Bond. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Cool Science Radio. Thank you. It's been great fun. Well, that was fun to hear all about James Bond and realize how many James Bond shows I I haven't even seen. How about you, Katie? Have you seen all 25 I, of them? I didn't know there was a fire-breathing dragon in one of them, so <laughs> apparently I've got a lot of catching up to do. You have a, a good thing to do, binge, <laughs> binging over, it, you know, when it's 10 below outside. It's a good, a good goal, <laughs> watching all the James Bond. I'm John Wells with Linware Peak. Nat Geo Kids has just released 1,000 Facts About Space by Dean Regis. Did you know, for an example, that one of Saturn's moons is so hollow it would float in water, or that the largest known star is 3.69 billion times bigger than our own sun, or that Jupiter likely has diamonds floating in its clouds? These three facts and 997 more and a whole bunch of photographs and illustrations are in this book. Dean Regus, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Ah, thanks for having me. We are delighted to have you. And this whole thing about diamonds floating in the clouds, uh, what's that all about? Yeah, Jupiter is this weird, wacky, gigantic gas giant planet. So it's mostly made of hydrogen and helium. There's no solid surface. So if you went there and flew there and tried to plant a flag, good luck. You'll just sink right into the planet, burn up and say goodbye. But up in the upper, upper atmosphere, there's some weird things happening where you see this great red spot, the, the giant storm on Jupiter. And there's some ways that some elements could be coming together in the upper atmosphere where diamonds could be formed and fall down. But uh, yeah, we're not going up there and scooping them up and collecting them. It's not quite like that, but it is kind of fascinating to think about. And what's the age group that this book is targeted for? 
I think this book is mostly really great for late elementary middle schoolers that are have this kind of idea of, of this fascination with space that, you know, kids go through this kind of space phase where they go through the dinosaur stage first and then the space stage or vice versa. And so I think it connects with people in that kind of uh, that kind of mindset, but also I think it's good for high schoolers that are looking for some extra things that they might like, you know, help them out to, to stimulate their interest in certain topics like asteroids or comets or the sun. Um, but I, I, I try the way I write things is I try to be sneaky and try to get the adults interested too. Uh, because I think it's one of those kind of books where adults can learn just as much as kids and maybe kind of form a connection over these facts and, you know, read this together or share facts, uh, from across the generations. I think that's like a really good benefit of this book. Well, Dane, I think you're on to something here. I feel like there's this life cycle of interest in things like space and in things like dinosaurs. And kids are so into it. It's like the first time you learn about this stuff, you you think it's amazing. And then what happens to us as we go on in life and we get busy and we we stop thinking about the cosmos, we stop thinking about space and all of these thousand facts that you're presenting here. And then somewhere along our lives, I think maybe we get interested again, but we think all of those really elementary things that we forgot about, it's almost like we're too embarrassed or something to to claim that we don't know which planet it is after all that has rings. So yeah, no, I, I think talk about yourself a bit too and, and how you managed to stay interested. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is this kind of cycle to things and it is interesting how kids go through stages and they're not always exactly the same ones. Sometimes they flip flop, but there's usually in a lot of people, a, a star stage and a planet stage where they get really into it. And then what happens? Boy, I wish I knew what happened once you become a teenager, but things happen and, uh, you know, you get interested in lots of other things. It's the, it's the cycle of life. I would imagine if we go to astronomers in the ancient Greek world, they went through the same thing. <laughs> They're like, mm, I'm 12 years old now. I'm suddenly not interested in these kind of things. I have other, uh, I'm sure this has been happening forever. And then you get back to it as an adult. And we find that at the Cincinnati Observatory too, where I work is that, you know, we have this great interest. There's like this kind of gap where, people, uh, you know, they have to have families and get jobs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, one thing that kind of struck me is that I'm, I'm, I'm slightly a big kid at heart because I'm still exploring the universe as if I'm in my star stage now. Um, and I, I remember remarking to a, a kid once that, you know, is super into this, like just can't get enough astronomy. And that their parents were, you know, less excited about it, that kind of thing. And, and it kind of struck me. And I think I even said it to the, the to the kid is like, you know, you know, adults, you know, we have to do non-astronomy things sometimes. And the kid is like, really? What? Like what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what other people do because I do astronomy all the time too. And I, I think that's why kids like, like, my job is because they want to do, they want to play with big telescopes and, and look at the stars too. So I feel incredibly lucky that this is a, uh, you know, that this career happened. And so if I can encourage kids to stay kids and keep exploring, that's, that's a, uh, that's part of my job. Well, I think that you could certainly encourage both kids and adults to stay interested by telling them 
that it's possible that you could even have an asteroid named after you, like you do, Dean. What is this 8815 Dean Regis asteroid? Yeah. I, and why I, such a creative name? <laughs> it is one of the greatest honors I've ever had was to have an asteroid named after me. Um, and it is, yeah, so the official name is 8815 Dean Regis. Uh, 8815 means it's somewhere around the 8,815th asteroid discovered. Um, we're, astronomers are now up in the 700,000s of asteroids that have been found, uh, a lot of them very recently. So I don't know if they've cracked 800,000 yet, but they're getting there. Um, so having an asteroid named after me was really cool. It was uh, when you discover something in space, an asteroid or comet. Well, comets are usually named after the discoverers, but asteroids, you can name it whatever you want. So whoever discovers an asteroid has first dibs on, on naming it. And mine was not named by the discoverer. Uh, after a certain number of years, then the person who calculates the orbit can name it. And so that's how it came to me is that the the guy who calculated the orbit, uh, his name is Fred Bowman. He uh, named it after me um, from, you know, all the education work I do. And I was so tickled. And I mean, it's it's like I still can't even believe it. I probably have a picture of it here somewhere. Yeah, I usually do. Uh, hold on. No, I guess it's oh, it's behind. It's behind my other picture. Anyway, but yeah, it's a it's a great honor to have a piece of rock uh, out in space named after me. Yes. Dean, can you tell us how the book is organized and what sort of con you know content you have in this book? Yeah, so the book is broken up by chapters and it's each section has a little different theme to it. So you have your classic ones like facts about the moon, facts about the sun, facts about each individual planet. Um, but then there's, you know, kind of general categories like facts about galaxies and stars and uh and then there's also some about space travel. So humans in space, you know, first astronauts, first missions to places, that kind of thing. Um, and, and then it, it starts off with the first category is like is super gigantic, humongous things about space. And it talks about the biggest, the, the baddest, the best things, uh, including the biggest black hole ever discovered and, and the one that was recently photographed a few years ago in a galaxy uh, far, far away. And uh, it, so it kind of starts with this biggest, grandest scale and then takes you on in from there. You know, Dean, we all have uh, challenges trying to get our heads wrapped around the enormity of the universe and and how many galaxies there are and, and those sorts of things. Um, what advice do you have for us or, or, or how how are you able to get your head around all of this? Yeah, the the vastness of the universe is is mind blowing. It's you know it's infinite. It's it goes on forever, and it's hard for us to wrap our brain around infinity. And you say something like, "Okay, our Milky Way galaxy has you know three hundred billion stars in it." Yeah, I uh, I don't know what three hundred billion looks like. And then you say there's probably two trillion other galaxies in our universe, just like the Milky Way. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's really startling. And uh, I, I usually, uh, you know, when I share this with audiences, I usually take a break and I say, so how's everybody feeling? Feeling feeling big, important? <laughs> uh, and everybody's like kind of, because the vastness of the universe is, is, is intimidating. There's no doubt about it. The, the thing that makes me, and in fact, actually one of the um, one of the students that I was teaching, 
um, just kind of said out loud, he said, uh, he said, Dean, how do astronomers deal with the depression? And I was like, whoa, that's, that's a deep question, man. I mean, it's like, yeah, because well, you feel very insignificant and everything. Um, but I, somehow I got over that at some point. And I think maybe what it was, was that I, I feel like, okay, sure. We're small, teeny tiny things on a little tiny planet going around a average sun, you know, two thirds out of an average galaxy in a cold, dark universe. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's a downer, but <laughs> the good part is we know this, that we're, we have the technology, we have the smarts that despite our small size and stature, we've explored a lot of the universe that so we can actually make a map of the universe and that every day we add to that map every day we find something it's it's this is the exploration of uh, of being human is is doing this and uh it's 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 so awesome to be part of that journey <laughs> well the flip side to that question dean is probably something that you get you know rather than how do you handle the depression of knowing how big the universe is and how small we are is knowing how small we are and what a tiny planet we live on isn't it arrogant of us to think that we are the only uh life out there and how do you answer that question about life on other planets because it's something that it seems to be in in you know in the last ten years or so it, the inevitability is becoming clearer and clearer. Yeah, I mean, I, I always just go back to that old joke: is that we have this vast, infinite universe, and if we're the only life form, man, what a waste of space! I mean, we we haven't <laughs> gone anywhere. We've sent you know twelve people to the moon. Uh, we've sent uh, spacecrafts out to Pluto, but the rest of it is you know we're exploring from home basically. Um, so I go back and forth on this. There, statistically, you think, okay, there's this many stars, there's this many galaxies. Planets are more abundant than we thought that they would be. Um, certainly, statistically, if we're, you know, are we life on Earth? Are we one in a million, one in a trillion, one in a quadrillion? So I, you got to think statistically, there's got to be something else out there somewhere in the universe. Now, that being said, uh, there is... Uh, I've never seen a UFO. I've never heard a legit alien story. Uh, and the other thing that I think about is how unique our place is. Earth went through some stuff, like some weird stuff that, to bring us to where we are. You know, this is not just the Earth hasn't just been around for a little while. It's been around a long time. And that we have this very, very unique planet. I, you know, it, I, I have, I have really, my gut reaction says, yeah, there's got to be something else out there. The scientist in me says, uh, you know, uh, we can't prove it. So statistics aren't proof just in and of themselves. But come on, we gotta. And so I'm hoping that uh, we we find something, some kind of thing. And uh, I, I don't go out on many limbs very often, but I do believe that we're gonna find. Uh, alien life this century. I think that's going to be the story of the century. And of course, I make that prediction knowing full well I won't see uh, the end of that. So you know, nobody can ever uh, prove me wrong while I'm alive. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, a thousand facts about space. A lot of these are facts that we may have learned at some point. We may have never learned. I'm not going to be embarrassed here by <laughs> declaring in your quick facts about measuring time, that all of the days of the week are actually 
named after the sun, the moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. I didn't know that. I know. I didn't know that either growing up. I was just like, yeah, just memorize the days of the week. But yeah, they all have to go, they all go back to the ancient version of planets. So um, so Saturn Day, that's where that comes from, is the planet Saturn. Uh, Monday is Moon Day. Sunday is Sunday. Because in the ancient world, the sun and moon were considered planets because they seemed to move across the, the background stars. The stars were all fixed, but the moon and sun changed their positions. And so that's what a planet was back then. Now, of course, the other ones, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, don't make much sense to us as Americans because those are from Norse gods. Um, uh, boy, I can't remember the, all their names, but two, Wed, um, Odin, and um, Thor, Odin, Thor, and uh, Freya is the other one. So these are Norse gods and goddesses that were associated with the planet. So Tuesday, well, think of other languages and you go to yeah. French and Spanish. Mars Mardi Gras and is mm -hmm. Tuesday and that's Mars's day is Mars day. Wednesday is Mercury day. Thursday is Jupiter. Friday is Venus. And those were the only planets they knew about in the ancient world. No Uranus day and no Neptune day. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of fun. But these, there's these holdovers from ancient astronomy are still with us, which is just mind blowing. And uh, yeah, I never learned about that in, in when I was a kid either. Yeah. Oh, Dean, you're a very curious person. What one question about the universe would you like to have answered that has not been answered yet? Ooh, boy, that's a tough one. I think that I want to know if there's fossils on Mars. That's what I, that is the one of the probably top questions that I want to know. I mean, there's lots of people that are like, I want to see the earliest parts of the universe. I want to see the Big Bang. I want to uh, see things, but I, I, I'm thinking closer to home. I, 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 I don't know if how likely it is, but I would love for one of the days, the rovers on Mars to just like kick up some sand and roll over a fossil. I mean, that would be, uh, that's what I want to see. Um, boy, that would be really cool. But uh, would I go myself? Probably not. <laughs> I'd like to watch other people go. That would be fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, 10 years ago in the early days of SpaceX, they had a couple of rockets that exploded uh, during launch. And they only had enough money for one more launch to make their case to NASA and the rest of the world. So this third flight was really important. It was successful. And then flash forwarding to today, SpaceX has successfully launched 198 Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy rockets. It's it's an incredible achievement. And they almost went out of business. Yeah, it was a pretty close thing. And um, I mean, I think that the founder has a little bit of money, so I think they would have figured it out. But uh, they they are the one contributors to the space program that are really solid. I mean, there's the other companies that are sending people up for little rides up and down. Um, but SpaceX is the one that's actually doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And having a private company that involved is is a little un, unusual or unexpected uh, because space programs generally are big government projects. But governments usually if not always contract out so but having this one that's kind of uh making great strides uh is encouraging it's because it's going to need a concerted effort to go forward with this 
um, especially if we're going to be doing uh, pilot admissions and sending people up to space. Dean, I'm wondering, um, you know, last year, 2022 was a really good year for, for space. We, the average person saw, you know, SpaceX launches and Artemis, the Artemis mission to the moon. We're now talking about, you know, citizens traveling to the moon, perhaps as, as tourists even in the future. And I'm wondering if those sorts of things create a lot more interest that you see at um, in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Observatory, where you are. Um, does Is that cre- that sort of thing creating more interest among adults? I think so. There's the 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 people in space, you know, the space tourists kind of has mixed reviews. It seems like there's like some people are like, oh, that's really cool. I'd love to do that. And some people are like, mm, yeah, I'm not rich enough to ever afford that. And yeah, it, it, so that one has a mixed, it's kind of a mixed bag right now. I think the, the two, well, the one surprise mission that I, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised that was that was really exciting to people was the DART mission last year where they purposely ran into an asteroid to try to redirect it to test some skills that could possibly save the earth. I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, I I think we know what's going to happen. Like what's the test all about? Like, or is that, but it was more about, could we actually hit a tiny little rock that's way out in space and move it? And having that in our arsenal is, is never a bad thing as the options and people love that which i should have known better because yeah. all americans love explosions so i mean like, come on it's what's better than exploding something on a rock but definitely <laughs> beyond that is uh the james webb space telescope that has been uh, hands down the story of last year the, the pictures that came out it's that's on all social media it's on everywhere people are blown away by these pictures and um it, it, that one is a little bit of a surprise to me, but um, yeah, once I started seeing those come out and people's reactions, I think that was probably the biggest motivator. And we see this as people coming to the observatory wanting to look through our telescopes because they 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 think, mm-hmm. oh they yeah, our, see that. you'll get it, you'll get it just as good a view, right? I'm like, no, our telescope's a little older; it's 177 years old, so it's not going to be quite as good. Um, but uh, it gets people views of Saturn, so you can see the rings of Saturn through a backyard telescope. You can see the moons of Jupiter. It's it's one of those things that's just uh, it's definitely a subject that you might think is inaccessible but is not there's amateur astronomy clubs all around the country there's a great one in salt lake city that i've worked with before and uh all around the country so wherever you are um check with your local astronomy clubs your planetariums your science centers and your observatories and we'll show you the stars that's great hey a quick question before we let you go Uh, on february 2nd and 3rd there is going to be a rare comet that we may be able to see it's going to be green it's passing close to earth can you just tell us a little bit about where we might be more likely to see it or how i can be real quick and be a real downer on it this (laughs) comet is not probably going to do anything um I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this comet is, uh, it's got a good press agent because it is being overhyped. Like, I don't know who, who's <laughs> doing the press on this comet. I need to employ whoever it is because, yeah, this comet is, it, unless something weird happens and unexpected, this comet is not going to be visible to the naked eye anywhere, any place, anytime. 
And that was Dean Regas joining us from National Geographic.